Hey all, thank you for listening, as always. Today we have a special edition of the Buddy Ruski Show. In collaboration with Let's Talk Durham, I had the pleasure of interviewing Raleigh mayoral candidate, Dr. Terrence Ruth. Over the last couple of years, Raleigh city government has been in a bit of turmoil, from the election schedule being changed to calls for a special election to unseat the current mayor prior to the end of her term. Dr. Ruth and I decided to keep things focused on his particular candidacy and what motivates him as a leader and nominee. If you're interested in following the full story, both the News and Observer and Indie Week have done great reporting on the topic. Thanks again to Kat at Let's Talk Durham for collaborating with me on this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Terrence Ruth. How you doing? I am doing well, doing well. Yeah, thank you for the interview. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm uh, I'm in Durham, but I am always fascinated by um, local politics and just like, especially because you know. And, and this was part of one of the questions I asked. Are the triangle is forever connected? So the things that happen yeah. in Raleigh, that happen in Chapel Hill, that happen in Wake County more broadly, you know, mm-hmm. have an effect on on the region as a whole. So, you know, they have an effect on me um, as a Durham citizen. So, and just politics are interesting to me too. So, uh, I, I, I want to just say that uh, I'm seeing a level of civic engagement and awareness um, that's peaking at a college age or, or group. Um, that I think is 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 really hopeful because I hear a lot of complaints that oh people don't know what, you know about the mayor and what it is. I don't know if that's um, that, that's going to be accurate um, soon. <laughs> I think there's a group that's uh, pretty plugged into local, uh, and then you're seeing a well-funded effort of people uh, paying for people to I mean paying for voters to understand the significance of municipal uh, elections. And so I think that's a valuable strategy both looking at state and federal uh, policy changes. Were you involved in politics much uh, at a college age? Uh, For me, I was an educator. um, And here in North Carolina, educators are almost overlapped with policy and advocacy. I mean, it's almost almost part of the job description. But in Florida, where I I received my, my, my original teacher's certificate, it didn't have that overlap. So when I came here, I was like, wow, this is, I mean, this is refreshing. Um, so in college, however, I was in Atlanta for my Oglethorpe, my first four years. And my class was taught by the adjutant to um, Bernice King and uh, Credit Scott was alive at the time. Um, and so I had the chance to introduce uh, the, the late John Lewis. And um, what's amazing to me is uh how young they were, you know, when they were engaged. We weren't talking about old people during that time and older uh, individuals. Uh, but now we have this assumption that, you know, political engagement must come with a with maturation. But that wasn't the case when for the people we celebrate, you know, your, your uh, MLK, your John Lewis, your Malcolm X. I mean, some of these, you know, some of these individuals are, you know, under 30. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we're talking about, you know, very ripe college age. So, yeah, yeah. Well, what got you into to politics? Well, one, uh, in education, what you see is the intersection of, of bad policy decisions. So in education, you're going you're gonna to intersect with healthcare. You're going to intersect with um, affordable housing. You're going to intersect with criminal justice system. You're going to intersect with um, uh, gentrification. You're going to intersect. With, I mean, we can keep going on, on this, um, but education is where the decisions of local, state, and federal uh, uh, policy decisions meet in one space. 
And so uh, after a while, I started to I started to realize that what I'm seeing takes something beyond this role of teacher. Then I began to evaluate edu- uh, education policy. So I evaluated education policy, was able to network with different policy leaders. And that's when I realized that the federal government has a certain level of influence, but it's just the purse. The state has decisions that impact uh, uh, my life and and schooling. They determine the school budget for the whole state. Um, And so for me, I started to see as I was evaluating policy, how power is negotiated between the state, the federal and the local government. And so for me, I, 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 that's when I entered, you know, uh, my role as the NAACP executive director uh, for North Carolina. And I started to see how um, when there's a problem, these nice little neat federal, state, local buckets is irrelevant for somebody who's suffering from something. And so um, as, a, as a politician, if you're only advocating for one thing, you may be missing the rest of that human being. And so I entered this space trying to see people as whole. And, uh, and so that's what really moved me from the classroom into uh, advocacy. In this state, it's not a surprise. In other states, they might be a little bit, <laughs> but this state is, it has a very rich social justice history. Well, and in particular here, you talked about education and, and policy overlapping. The teachers here have to advocate for themselves yeah. because they're yeah. constantly battling budget cuts. And we're seeing right now, you know, not just in North Carolina, but other states dealing with what can and can't be taught and sort of the suppression of important elements of our history uh, that may be uncomfortable for some folks, but are, again, important to the story of our nation. I'm a huge fan of the show, The Wire. I talk about it all the time. And and I think that's one of the things that I really appreciated it when I first watched it probably a decade ago was uh, how well they illustrated that intersectionality of community between education and policing and the economy and all these different parts where you you can't, like you said, as a politician, focus on one because Mm -hmm. people are not just these one spaces that you find them in. And so I think that's really important for us to understand as citizens of that community and also for us to understand when we're thinking about leadership and who we want to put in positions of power. Do they understand that intersectionality of of people? So I appreciate you you bringing that that point to light. Not not a problem. And and, uh, I think to your point, uh, if I'm leading or, or, or am I, if I'm representing a community and I can't identify or empathize with their lived experience, then my perspective may have huge gaps, which means my decisions will lean on that perspective and I may miss opportunities to really serve that community well. And so I think that's also linked to that teacher role as well. What are you hoping to bring to the to the mayorship in Raleigh specifically? What do you feel like it is that you can do as mayor that you may not be able to accomplish through other roles that you have in the community now? Uh, one, uh, you know, that's a really solid question. I'm often asked that question well. Um, I mean, often, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Um, and usually they juxtapose that position to the school board uh, position. Um, but I think when you're talking about the outcomes of schools, right? When the outcomes of schools, you can directly link it to a zip code. When you're talking about an earning potential of a human being, you can literally link it to a zip code. When you're defining gentrification, you can literally link it to a wave of salaries and job opportunities into a community and and then a wave that's exiting. I mean, literally, when you get down to the nuts and bolts, you're talking about streets, buildings, homes, neighborhoods. And I think that the role of the mayor, especially the capital city, 
can set an example and a new brand for a state that um, that's wrestling with how do we move uh, this city forward with such amazing growth. I mean, this city and this this state forward with such amazing uh, growth. Um, and I think that there's some opportunities to lead other cities by being a mayor and being an example in the city capital. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, one of the things that comes to mind um, that I mentioned in our email correspondence before is, is this uh, influx of tech jobs specifically, you know, on the horizon for, and that's been true for North Carolina, the Triangle specifically in waves for the last 40 years. I mean, you think about the Research Triangle Park at its inception, what it did for the economy here, uh, and then more recently, sort of in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, what places like uh, Google, you know, coming and having their little satellite offices here, places like American Underground, both here in Durham and Raleigh, Red Hat, um, and the growth that Red Hat has experienced uh, more recently, companies like Pindo, what they're able to do here. Um, you know, there, there is a significant amount of growth opportunity happening in the tech sector. Uh, but as we all know, that comes with um, ramifications. And for a lot of folks, they won't see the benefits of, of those opportunities that are coming to this region. And so I'm, I'm wondering what, what you think the role of the mayor is in that regard, what, what the mayor can do to help spread those opportunities around um, so that we are not always importing talent to fill these positions, but are really growing our talent locally uh, so to, to be able to take advantage of those opportunities uh, in those zip codes uh, that you mentioned? Well, I, Justin, your, your question is a really solid question. And if we don't answer this question well, if we don't answer this question well, I think we're gonna become where those tech companies are running from, your San Francisco, et cetera. So if we don't answer this question well, I think we follow a trend that has a dead end. And so for me, you know, what I'm amazed by, however, um, are the efforts um, of these major tech companies when it comes to talent development, workforce development and equity. Um, I was a Juneteenth speaker for Red Hat last year. Um, and through the invitation by John Chapman, you know, they, they have an organizational effort that is reaching deeply into communities of color. Um, and they provide technology support and, and, and they hire from communities of underrepresented, uh, of communities that have underrepresented pop demographics in technology. Um, they literally have a whole department set aside for that. Uh, and I've partnered with IBM as well to facilitate a community-driven platform that, some, that, that, that they were building to support community leaders. And I'm, when I say community leaders, I'm talking about activists, um, uh, community leaders in terms of faith leaders, uh, very raw grassroots leaders. Um, IBM uh, was, was building and facilitating this conversation that would provide technology to these leaders so that they can amplify their voice and amplify their impact. Um, so in my opinion, I think merging the top really technology, um, tech, tech, technological organizations with some of the more influential community leaders and grassroots leaders, um, I think we have an opportunity to really build community investments uh, in a way that we haven't seen in communities that these larger tech companies are coming from. Um, so we, if we have IBM, Red Hat, uh, Pindo, Google, um, Apple at, the, at a round table um, to support underinvested communities in Raleigh, I think it will have a significant step forward showing how we, the city, care about poor, black and brown underinvested neighborhoods in the city. Um, we know already that these tech companies come with a reputation of wanting to care. Now this is our chance as a city to advocate for what that means for this area, this region, this triangle, so that they come and they contribute to the efforts to serve those who are not represented, both in the income levels they mentioned, I think it was around 200,000 per job, um, 
the, the housing market. Um, so the individuals that we're talking about are not being moved out of their housing, but they're receiving jobs in which they can acquire housing. Um, and then also um, on top of that, what does it mean for the city of Raleigh to have a reputation to attract certain companies that's already leaning in that direction? I think that's more significant and more sustainable. And so a round table in which we have these major players, and many of them are already at the table. Um, so how do we have a strategy looking forward as to how do we mold and shape Raleigh differently than your San Francisco's, your, your, your New York's, your, um, et cetera? Yeah, I'd love to dig into that a little bit uh, because that is a question that I think comes up a lot is what will make this experience different here in the Triangle in Raleigh in North Carolina uh, compared to your San Francisco's, your New York, uh, you know, where, as you mentioned, these companies are are fleeing for various reasons. Do you think that they're coming here uh, because of that type of investment that they want to do? Um, and is there something that we can do as a community here that in, in North Carolina, specifically in Raleigh, uh, to sort of preemptively shape the work or the conversation around these important issues so that we don't walk that same path with them uh, as has happened in, in previous cities? Yeah, one, uh, the community can draft a community benefits agreement and advocate to your local municipalities to because uh, some of these companies exist across cities, across counties, um, but there's a community benefit agreement that you can have with that company to show and outline how that company will benefit local communities, in particular communities of color and poor communities. Um, I will have that document um, as the beginning of the relationship so that there's accountability. <laughs> so that there's a measure that there, there's not just a, a blanket promise. Um, also, you need to vote leaders in office that will advocate for the community at the beginning of the relationship. That that company being in that particular city or county can't mean more than you than that human being in that zip code. And so for me, I think there's a balance here that don't exist in Raleigh. I think we need to advocate for communities that they benefit from the growth and not just lose and, and are displaced from growth. Um, that's one thing. The second thing I think is there needs to be a relationship between the school district, the colleges, and these tech companies. There's a, there's a uh, Pitt, Pitt College, Pitt University, um, just launched last year during COVID, an uh, industry 4.0 lab. I, I think it's called Innovation, uh, uh, Industry Innovation, I believe it is. But it's in, it's in Westmoreland County. This lab allows for communities, underrepresented poor communities, to be exposed to the next wave of technology. That's why they call it the Industry 4.0 so that they're prepared to enter that workforce, that they're prepared to be in that job market, so that the community is prepared to be in that job market. The school district, the community colleges need to be linked together to build uh, uh, programs and opportunities like that, that allow for students who are in certain zip codes or sit in certain air, um, um, graduation percentages in this in their school and in their county to have access and opportunity to leave that zip code. And there's a chance for us to do that. We have all the ingredients. All it takes is leadership now. We have all the top tech companies. We have all the major colleges. We have all the, we have the large, one of the largest in the country uh, community colleges, Wake Tech. So the ingredients is not the issue. It's leadership that's the issue. Who's facilitating that conversation? Who's leveraging those, those uh, 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 partnerships and collaborations? And I think those are opportunities in which we can do something different that's longstanding and sustainable that will actually create future change and not just an immediate community benefit. And do you think your role as mayor in those conversations would be 
mostly as a facilitator or do you, is there actual policy that can be implemented to help build those networks and bridges between the different educational systems and those tech companies? Yeah, so it, it most of it will be facilitation because some of the responsibilities sit on the school board, some of the responsibilities sit within the, the, uh, the district, but that facilitator role is major. And that leadership role is major. If we're not championing this as a, as a city, if it's not the brand of the city that we are leaning into community that's underrepresented and we're standing with them, then more than likely these conversations are not gonna happen. And so I think the facilitation and the leadership role is significant for the mayor, but it takes work and homework to get these individuals into the room and make sure that everybody is aligned across this, this goal. Um, and that links to the outcomes for the mayor. So if we are building a talent pipeline, that means we can retain more people. If we're building the talent pipeline, that means that more people who live here can buy a house later. If we're, if we're retaining the talent pipeline, that means that these companies would then be paying that 200,000 to somebody who grew up in Raleigh. So, I mean, there's a chance to really make some significant um, goals, but it's gonna take um, intergovernmental and public-private partnerships to really do that well. What do you think will be your biggest challenge uh, during this uh, race for the mayoral, uh, for the mayorship in Raleigh, um, given, you know, what you know about the, the history of Raleigh and sort of the challenges that it faces as a city, what do you think will be your biggest challenge um, during this, uh, you know, competitive race? Uh, one, it's a really good question. Um, I like to see one, I think challenges provide the best moments for somebody to show their leadership. That's, I think that's number one. Um, so if you look at last year, last year was moments in which we've seen leaders rise to the top across municipalities, right? Um, very difficult year, but those who led well rose to the top. Um, and I consider my campaign ground zero. Right for for engaging duties of me, I, I consider it ground zero. I'm I'm not assuming that I give a speech and then once you know the election ends, I get started working. No, I'm working right now. Right now, I'm working on uh, my first 100 days. Um, right now, uh, I am leading in small business support. Um, I have launched a Truth for Raleigh um, tour, um, and it's called the Truth Tour. We have we have an event coming up June 15th, and that uplifts and centers um, small businesses. Uh, across the city, not just downtown, but across the city. Um, so each of our stops on this tour uh, will allow for me to listen to small business leaders, engage the community, and then learn the priorities of those who are not sharing in the positive growth of the city. That's significant. You, you hear a lot of individuals cheerleading the growth of the city. However, I would consider um, affordability the, the largest challenge um, right now in our city. Um, affordability is a broad, in, in a broad sense. Um, we hear about the aggressive housing market um, that is making the existing housing stock unaffordable for a large segment of our city. Um, the, the $80 million housing bond uh, will not be enough for the pace of the market that we're seeing. Um, I am working with a group of individuals that represent a mix uh, uh, group of, uh, they represent a mixed sectors um, and they create, we're creating a faith-based affordable housing. Now, what I mean by that is this model looks at the land owned by faith communities. And we work with faith communities to either develop affordable housing units, preserve or acquire land and repurpose existing buildings. Now you might say, why are you starting with the faith communities? They own the most property in the city. Mm. They have land theoretically that's already being served. They are already theoretically serving those who need housing. And so for us, we felt that that's the best place to start. Um, and we have a chance to do something special in Raleigh, but it requires leadership and an aggressive strategy because the market is aggressive. We can't have a lax strategy on an aggressive market. We must be as aggressive on affordability. Um, but however, you know, if we're talking about affordability in a more broader sense. Uh, what's also going to be a challenge is transportation access, job access, 
Um, and it's just as significant. Um, we are seeing a strain on existing transportation infrastructure, uh, especially for those who are forced to live outside of Raleigh and then come in and work. Um, and then we are still seeing a strain on COVID recovery on small business. And this strain sits on top of um, a disconnected network of small business support and representation. Um, and I feel um, that I can connect small business leaders across the city by advocating for a small business affairs board or commission um, that can look at um, onboarding new businesses, um, ensuring diverse you know, business leaders, and then sustainability for small businesses. How do we sustain them once they're now you know, recovered from last year or from the issues that, that uh, preceded COVID? Uh, so for me, I think those are some of the challenges and that's how I will face it. a little bit about this, you know, sort of Raleigh, the, being the capital city in this state that is constantly trying to figure out who it is, who it wants to be, uh, you know, every election cycle, uh, North Carolina is one of the, you know, battlegrounds, so they are battleground states. Um, and, and part of that has to do with the sort of urban-rural divide um, that seemingly continues to grow in the state. Um, and, and because of that, our state legislature can be very contentious at times. It can be very difficult for things to move forward. And so I'm curious where you see your role as mayor of the state capitol, how you can build relationships with uh, our, our state legislature to really help move things forward because it will be a challenge you know, there are some things that mayors can can do on their own, but then in a lot of ways, cities are restricted by um, the state mandates. And so I'm, I'm wondering what, where you feel like there might be tension there and where you feel like you are um, uniquely qualified to uh, build relationships within the state legislature to try and help, you know, move Raleigh forward as a part of this bigger, uh, you know, bigger efforts statewide? That's a very good question, uh, Justin. And, and I, I want to talk a little bit about my experience just to give context to how I would deal with that. And, and, and that question is, uh, ha has preceded um, any COVID effort or anything of that nature. COVID has allowed for us to see the relationship between both the state and the local, but, but, but this question definitely preceded it. Um, I have uh, completed uh, a program called IOPLs, the Institute for Political Leadership, years ago. Um, and their primary philosophy uh, rests on the idea of getting each fellow to build a relationship before exposing your political affiliation. This was deliberate. So they taught you how to be a candidate. They walked you through the whole process, but they, they you were not allowed to give your political affiliation. And we met with leaders and candidates across the state. Um, and many of our peers and alumni are in the office right now. Um, and so I enter this candidacy with existing relationships. Uh, also, I think it is significant to mention that North Carolina benefits from a very saturated social justice and civically activated advocacy network um, that has for years been working on moving the state forward. Uh, and I was a part of that network as a former executive director of the NAACP state office um, under both Dr. Barb and Dr. Spearman. Um, so I see my role as centering the needs, desires, and hopes of the community in policy decisions. And I see the role of mayor as really having the ability to move across parties to produce uh, community, neighborhood, and center changes. Um, and and, and what's, what's amazing to me is that the changes I see in the future is going to be less dependent on the government and more dependent on the collaboration um, that will center community leaders, community innovation. These tech companies sit outside of government. And so, you know, I think and I believe that these partnerships will collectively, you know, build an impact on how the state view policy perspectives and decisions. And it's going to start locally, in my opinion. And the, new, the, the book, The New Localism, speaks to that to some degree. It shows the weight of local decisions on larger 
state and federal decisions. Um, and so for me, I, I would say um, the role of mayor um, is designed just by his role to sit outside of parties. That's why it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, nonpartisan race. The, in the two-year term is so that you are directly committed to the community each time. You only get two years to show that you are accountable and committed to their desires. And I think that accountability is healthy. And I think it allows for that person who's sitting in that role of mayor to carry that into larger policy uh, conversation. What is that? You mentioned only having two years. What does that first hundred days look like for you? What are some of the more pertinent uh, policies that you're looking to move on because of that limited window? Yeah. So for me, um, I think the the window should be continuous. So we've already started already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, um, the CACs were deleted when this council uh, entered office. The CACs may may or may not have been what people desire, depending on your perspective. But the, it obviously was desired by the city because there's an outcry still for the lack of community engagement platform between the mayor and the council and the the community leaders. My first 100 days has already started, and we have are starting right now by doing what we call community design sessions. And these community design sessions is designed to activate the community as to what they desire, what they imagine, what they hope for, for community engagement. We are literally listening, pulling in what the community wants to see and hear, taking the themes from that. And then we are designing with the community what a platform that engages the community should look like for the city of Raleigh. I'm, I'm, I'm not entering this election season by saying, I hope, I wish. I'm saying this is what I heard. This is what the community told me. And for me, I think community engagement and activation is number one. The, the trust between the community and the city council is on the ground and, 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 and to the mayor uh, in particular is on the ground. If we can't build trust between those two entities, I think any desire I have in the future to, to build or to create will be very difficult to accomplish. So for me, that's number one priority. Build trust with the community, that's number one. Number two is affordability. And I've already mentioned what I'm doing with that group. And then also the next uh, uh, effort is small business support. Within that first 100 days, we would like to have a small business roundtable where we take the leaders who are doing elements of small business operations well. And what I mean by that, prior to COVID, there were issues in terms of how does it mean, mean how do you create a sustainable small business? And we know that small business is the life of a city. That's what people come to experience. But what is untold is a lack of support for small business leaders. So you have some that are paying $18 an hour, just knocking it out the partner. You have some that's paying below minimum wage or at minimum wage. You have some small businesses where they're providing health care and you have some where they can't even afford to provide health care. You have some small businesses where they are paying for their employees to have transportation to get to work. They're trying to engage an employment sector that don't have reliable transportation. We need a small business board or commission that would build uh, infrastructure in the city to sustain and support business for the long haul, not just for COVID. And there are a group of leaders that we're already meeting with and we're creating a round table that will allow them to put their strategies together so that we can have best practice we can then measure who's doing this. We can then have a pledge of who, from what community will we hire? What's the salary that we will hire? So we can leverage this, this roundtable to really improve the practices of small business in the city to make it more sustainable, not just for the owner of the business, but the, for the workers as well. Yeah, and that seems like an, a, a place where bringing in some of these larger uh, businesses like a Google or an Apple can be... Uh, one of the places where they can be very um, supportive 
is uh, sort of where they're putting their money in the community once they arrive. So it's not just in the way that they hire, but it's also in something as simple as like where they're telling their employees to go for lunch, you know, sort of advocating for small businesses um, through their, you know, HR and, and onboarding processes and things like that. Um, because I, I think that's, you know, having talked to some small business owners here in Durham, you know, there are similar uh, frustrations, I guess, about, you know, when those businesses come, similar to folks, you know, in the community when as it relates to housing, it's, you know, these larger companies come, so it drives up the price of, uh, you know, storefronts, and, and that puts a real burden on a small business versus, you know, a place like, um, you know, recently we had a, a Starbucks uh, make its way into our community here in Durham. And, and it's, uh, um, I think we've only had maybe one or two before that. Yeah. And, and part of the reason was because the, uh, the affordability of that particular unit had just gone up significantly you know, since the last time another business had been in there. And, um, and so I think that, you know, as much as we want to praise, um, you know, larger corporations from coming here and making investments at times, both people and businesses, it, it takes too long for it to make its way to them. And so they're not able to, um, sustain themselves long enough to reap the benefits of that, um, you know, those corporations being here. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a challenge I think a lot of communities are facing is this, um, you know, what to do, how to support small businesses in a way that's sustainable, that's not just uh, like an injection of, of cash, but really like a sort of like building new philosophies about how yes. to support small businesses. Um, and as you mentioned, they are the, the backbone of, of any community that's that's why I enjoy yeah. traveling to places that, you know, I can, yes. the, the Starbucks in New York city is going to be no different than it is yes. in Boise, yes. Idaho. So, yes. um, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, for, you know, again, thinking about communities that are often underserved, I know that Raleigh has a rich arts community. Um, and something that I've, if there's one thing that'll get me out of Durham into Raleigh, it's, it's to see a, a good show or go to, um, you know, go to cam for one of their new exhibits. Uh, and so uh, I'm curious how you see the arts, um, you know, how you would like to, to, to build with the arts community in Raleigh and where you see the arts community um, as part of your larger plan to sort of enrich um, the communities in Raleigh? Yeah, uh, this question I think is uh, probably the first time I've been asked this question, but I think it's one of the more significant questions. Um, we see leaders like, uh, like Dr. Barber, right? You hear his oration and you go, wow, he's really telling us the direction we should go. Art in the history of social justice have been the documentarians. They have really told you the story they told you the story that you probably forgot or didn't make that book. And so I think last year you seen sort of a glimpse of why they're significant. When Raleigh shut down, art blossomed. <laughs> Literally when downtown shut down, you seen this beautiful art you know, enter. And so why do we make it to where art becomes the inverse of absence? And I think there's a chance with, with how we see downtown right now to embrace art right now. It's a chance to bring that energy, that underinvested uh, sector of the city as well, um, in as storytellers, not just of last year, but the whole history of Raleigh. We're still learning history. They just changed Cameron Village to Oberlin, uh, Oberlin District. And again, you're seeing where they're changing this, the, the, these names and these terms, and it takes art to really capture the essence of it, both music, both 
um, art itself plays, museums. Uh, and I think there's a chance for us right now to really invest heavy into what it means to retell the story of Raleigh for this next chapter of the city. You think there'll be a hopscotch this year? I, I, I hope so. Um, there's been enough progress so far, but I hope so. Uh, only because it brings just, it brings everybody into the city. I mean, it brings everybody in here. And then also um, when you look at the crowd, the crowd is a very diverse crowd. Um, and also it brings investment and value of type of customers, certain types of customers to bring value certain type of customer that probably will be ignored from that same region of the city. Um, and so I just think it does a lot, both subtle, um, then, then also out, out front and blatant. Yes. It's again, one of, one of the things that gets me over to Raleigh every year is hopscotch. I guess it's, you can't really call it hopscotch music festival anymore. Cause they added the, the yeah. like yeah. tech element to it a couple yeah. of years ago. So I just, I guess it's just and, hops, and hopscotch festival now. I want to. I want to also. I, I forgot completely uh, about the Truth Tour. The Truth Tour. When we, when I think of small business, I'm also thinking about entrepreneurs. Right? I'm not just thinking about storefront. Um, and so there's a band called Nito, and that band is playing June 15th. And so we are making sure that we uplift the local talent as well. The next month, we're having another event, another stop on the tour, and there's an artist playing. Um, so when it's not just the Terrence show, where's my picture everywhere. We're literally trying to uplift and empower existing small business entrepreneurs. And so for me, um, there's something about music. There's something about art. There's something about museums and, 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 and documenting history that is, is attractive for a city. That's why people like New Orleans. That's why people like, I mean, it's just something about that that makes it attractive. And I think our city is, is, is some steps behind in that effort. And I think my campaign will, will try to make some emphasis on how significant that is. Yeah, I often find that art is really the thing, I think is the flashpoint for a lot of communities uh, that, that happened here in, in Durham and places, mm -hmm. like you said, like New Orleans, um, even places like, you know, the, the, the sort of mainstays, Los Angeles, New York, yeah. you think about those places in a lot of time, at least for me, the first thing I think about is the music. That's right. And That's right. and That's that right. often in, ends up being the catalyst for other types of growth. That's um, right. You know, you start to see beautiful murals on places or uh, folks just, I mean, artists are very, that's they're, right. they're creative by nature. They're very DIY. And so they don't need that's a right. lot that's to right. get something off the ground. And right. there is a certain entrepreneurship to that as well. And, yes. um, and that unfortunately, I think also ends up being first on the chopping block in yes. a lot of communities is yeah. arts and arts funding and places where art and expression are yes. allowed or facilitated um and so it's it's uh, refreshing to hear someone talk about incorporating and uplifting art throughout their campaign because um you know i think we take artists for granted I, sure. a lot in, in our communities sure. and um so we we want to make sure that or at least i feel it's important to make sure that um, artists are included in the conversation when it comes to growth because unfortunately too art is not always a um a scalable endeavor you know sure. it's, it's hard to see right. the big money signs uh right. with art compared to uh, a tech business uh, especially right. in this day and age and so um, but they are equally as vital i think to the health of a community yes um so yeah i definitely want to um, you know, remind folks of that because I'm I've been an artist on and off for most of my life and um, find myself surrounded by art a lot and and can feel the enriching nature of art um, that is not always super visible um, but is definitely there. You know, my my brother is an artist in New York. Um, he has an exhibit on right now um, and. Uh, 
his character is called Oreo. Um, and he was painting during 2020. It's being celebrated now, but he was painting during 2020. Um, and then also is a guy named uh, David Wimbush. He's a local um, singer. And he was in this protest in March during 2020. He wrote a song. So all the, the paintings and murals that were went up, they, you know, they could be painted over, they could be washed away, but he wrote a song that will last <laughs> forever. And uh, and he played this song for one of the conferences I attended. And, and I'm, we're trying to get him to be a part of the truth tour as well. But there's 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 something, there's something in which art captures and stops time for a second. And I think that's valuable um, because we are often in an age where time is moving so fast that we think that we're experiencing something for the first time. And so David wrote that song. And so it allows for us to revisit why that moment was significant and why the history that led up to that moment was significant. That's great. Um, what is something, I know we've, our time is uh, limited, so I wanna ask you a couple more things here. What are you most excited about uh, if you are elected mayor of Raleigh? One, <laughs> right now I'm excited, one, because I am meeting some amazing people who don't require a billboard. <laughs> they don't. They don't want any attention, but they're doing amazing things. For example, uh, Union Special. I met with Andrew, and he said, "Terrence, I'm paying everybody in the restaurant eighteen dollars an hour, dishwasher to the front. I'm paying for their insurance." He said, "I might, I might cut even on my, you know, business, but I'm going to always have these employees. I'm going to take care of them first, and I'll take care of myself." If you're looking at a spreadsheet, he will be invisible. But this campaign allows for me to meet these human beings who are not trying to. Then you have people who don't have any income and they're advocating for their community and that's what they do 24 seven as a volunteer. And it fascinates me that somebody is so passionate about something that it becomes something they do and it's a very hard work for nothing at all. And then you run into people who have more resources than they need. And you would assume that they are okay with gentrification. You would assume that they are okay. And you meet these people that say, this is not right. I wanna put my money towards the other argument. So I'm meeting contradictions. And that's what excites me. Um, I'm meeting contradictions all the time. And I think that's what's going to um, bubble up in this campaign. I think this is what's gonna make this city beautiful. That's that's great. I. I... I imagine that, uh, you know, your time, you know, as when you are a politician, but especially as mayor is um, very constrained and you're constantly sort of bouncing back and forth to different meetings and different responsibilities. And so it's hard to continue to build those meaningful relationships. But I often find talking to other politicians, um, at least ones that I happen to appreciate or respect is that that's something that they continue to make time for. Um, and, and that's what really drives them is that relationship building. And, and, you know, unfortunately it can sometimes get lost in the, uh, you know, in the fray, but, um, but that does really seem to be the, the core of, of the job too, is this yeah, relationship building, right. because as you have said, you know, throughout our time together, that, often your job is really facilitating getting people to the table, bridging these gaps, inviting folks whose voice, you know, might've previously been suppressed for whatever reason um, and allowing an equal playing field to, to build um, real community. And, and that, that's, that's what pays dividends. I think in, in the long term is, um, you know, you want to bring as many people to the table and have them invest uh, in one another as possible because they're, that I, th I believe is, is sustainable. You know, there, are, there will be ebbs and flows in, in many other things. Um, you know, as we've seen uh, made evident last year with, with COVID, um, you know, that was something that none of us were prepared for, but I think that it, it, 
um, it brought to light the types of communities that we have and the, and the people that are willing to invest in one another, um, you know, that will continue, even if, even if they, you know, had to, um, you know, quote unquote, take a loss, even if they were sort of putting themselves at risk in any way, um, you know, that, that kind of commitment to community will, will pay, um, will pay dividends down the road. And so uh, building that as a leader, I think is uh, really important um, sort of pillar of any campaign. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share? I don't, I don't have any more pressing questions, but I want to give you some time to, um, you know, if you have any, I know you talked about the truth tour, if, if you want folks to follow that, um, if there are other ways that folks can connect to your campaign, I, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, first I want to just say thank you, Justin. Your uh, questions uh, were, were uh, needed. Um, um, one, underneath all the headlines, your question really gets to the core <laughs> of the job. And so I just I appreciate you for having um, wonderful questions. Um, and the second uh, thing is the truth tour will happen every month. They pushed our elections to next year. At least that's the latest news. Um, so we have more time to engage people and that's what I love to do. And so each month we're having a uh, truth tour stop. We are committed to having um, a time that you would enjoy, but also a time in which you can come and meet me and ask um, a question directly. So this uh, truth tour this month is at Junction West, which is right near the, the train station in Raleigh. It's at 630, the door is open. Um, and then at seven, I briefly introduce the band and then they take it from there. Eight o'clock, we then go out to support the local restaurants. From beginning to end, every true stop supports a small business or a entrepreneur. Um, and then my website is uh, truth, T-R-U-T-H, for the word for Raleigh.com. And in there, you can go to the volunteer tab and would love for you to volunteer to be a part of the campaign. We will start our canvassing efforts at the end of June, early July, and we'd love to have as many volunteers as possible. And again, uh, you can email me at truth for Raleigh. That's truth, the number four, Raleigh at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. This has been been great. Like I said, I, you know, I, I get out to Raleigh when I can, but, um, you know, something maybe we didn't touch on a, a sticky point for me is always public transportation so you know i'd love to to maybe have a follow-up <laughs> conversation we could just talk about that or, or yes because <laughs> uh, that that would certainly help i'm a bike commuter here in durham so yeah. getting out to raleigh is uh not as as easy as i would like it to be but nonetheless um yeah i appreciate you spending some time with me today and uh, i know folks will really enjoy um hear your hearing your responses to these questions and getting to know you a little bit more so uh so thank you for that thank you i appreciate it take care all right take care you said that you love me for a long long time